This week on Making Contact. In this country, we are hydrologically blessed. We've gotten so good at collecting and treating and transporting water that we've kind of forgotten about it. We take it for granted. It's been 40 years since the Clean Water Act was signed into law. The goal was to assure safe water quality for the environment, humans, and wildlife. But with new contaminants, population growth, and climate change, the landscape of our water supply has been transformed. Meanwhile, regulation is being framed by some as an enemy of progress. We do need to create jobs, but if they dismantle all of these protections and the concerns that have evolved over the last 30 or 40 years, it's just going to be a disaster. On this edition, a look at how we manage our water in the 21st century. Are we doing too little, or are we trying to control too much? I'm Esther Mania, and this is Making Contact, a program connecting people, vital ideas, and important information. In 1969, when Cleveland's Cuyahoga River caught fire, it was one of a series of environmental disasters that Americans can now see up close on television. Here's environmental activist Robert F. Kennedy Jr. recalling some of those moments. I remember when the Cuyahoga River burned with flames that were eight stories high. I remember when the Santa Barbara oil spill in 1969 that closed virtually all the beaches in Southern California. Public outrage at the health consequences and the lack of protections in place spurred an environmental movement demanding change. In 1970, President Nixon responded to the public's demands and founded the Environmental Protection Agency. Shortly thereafter, the Clean Water Act and Safe Drinking Water Act were passed in order to assure clean water suitable for the environment, habitat, and humans. Each of us all across this great land has a stake in maintaining and improving environmental quality, clean air and clean water. These are part of the birthright of every American. In its early days, the Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA, implemented new regulations and policies that held some of the biggest water polluters, like corporations and local governments, responsible. It was a recognition of just how polluted many of America's waters had become. Here's William Ruckelhouse, the EPA's first administrator, speaking to PBS's Frontline. We had to select some big visible polluters, both industrial and municipal, go after them, make sure the public understood we were being responsive to their concerns. That era was a wake-up call for a nation whose scientific and industrial advances had obscured the reality of how precious clean water really is. Although 71% of the Earth's surface is covered by water, only 1% of that water is accessible to man. In this country, we are hydrologically blessed compared to a lot of the rest of the world. You know, we can turn the tap on at any time of day, get as much water as we want, any temperature for as long as we want. Alex Prudhomme is the author of The Ripple Effect, The Fate of Fresh Water in the 21st Century. It's usually extremely clean. And the irony of that is we've gotten so good at collecting and treating and transporting water that we've kind of forgotten about it. We take it for granted. 40 years after the Clean Water Act, do we still take water for granted? We asked a few random people on the streets of Oakland, California. We have a running water system where we don't really see where it comes from. You know, you just kind of turn on the tap and there it is. I think the majority don't even think about it. It's just something that most people don't concern themselves with. We don't really think about that we're wasting it. We just think about using it. They're careless. They're not involved with how important water is for our world. 
Author Alex Prudhomme says one of the reasons we take water for granted is because it's so cheap. He advocates the controversial position that we need to increase the cost of water in order for its perceived value to rise. If you price it too high, then some people can't afford it and you're playing with their lives. If you price it too low, there's no incentive for people to use it efficiently and they waste it. It's just human nature and we've seen this time and again. And what the experts told me was that essentially we're going to have to start pricing water more because just keeping it free, people waste it. And what they recommend is that we guarantee every citizen a certain amount of water for free, say 13 gallons per person per day, which in the developing world, it's a huge amount. But in this country, that's considered hardly anything. And then beyond that, you charge a tiered rate, meaning the more water you use, the more you'll pay. And that seems like a pretty fair system to me. Changing the pricing scheme for water would reach far into all aspects of society, not just your kitchen and bathroom. That's because water is what Prudhomme calls an access resource. An access resource is a fundamental resource, and that means that water underlies all other resources. So whether you're mining for gold or planting crops or building homes or hydrofracking for natural gas, all of those things require great volumes of water. And one of the phenomena that we're facing right now in the second decade of the 21st century is that those resources are all coming into conflict with each other over the issue of water. Every time we use water, it sets off a ripple effect, which is a whole series of consequences, most of which we are completely unaware of. Soap's a good example. Antibacterial soap doesn't actually work any better than regular soap, number one. Number two, the antibacterial agents in that soap, when they get washed into the water system, survive the treatment plant. They go into rivers and streams. And they kill all bacteria, not just the bad bacteria, but the good bacteria. And that leaves fish vulnerable to disease. Something seemingly so innocent, like antibacterial soap. And there are lots of other chemicals dripping into our water supply, from households just like yours. In other words, it's not just the big polluters that need to change. There's something very dramatic about seeing the deep water horizon on television and, and learning that something like five million gallons of oil was spilled in the Gulf of Mexico. But what we don't realize is that even more than that spills with little tiny drips from our machinery every year. Our machines use these hydrocarbons, uh, some of which are toxic, and that stuff ultimately gets into the environment. But we don't notice it because it's in such small quantities. There are also new contaminants and chemicals entering our waterways every day, with effects that are still unknown. The new pollutants are things like Viagra and new chemicals, new pesticides, new herbicides, new fertilizers. And the big question now is not only what's the impact of each one of those things when they get washed into the rivers and the streams and the lakes that we all depend on, but what happens when they commingle? What happens when there's a cocktail of these things? so that a baby fish or an insect or aquatic plants are subjected to, you know, synthetic estrogen, Chanel number no. 5, cocaine and marijuana, lead, toenail polish, all this stuff all at once. What happens? We don't know. Nor does the EPA know. Water advocates put the blame for poor regulation on an underfunded and understaffed Environmental Protection Agency. But Prudhomme says, while we've made great strides with the Clean Water Act and Safe Drinking Water Act, those historic pieces of legislation have fallen behind the times. Forty years after the Clean Water Act, a lot of the statutes of that act have become outdated. 
and people have been cheating more and more. And in some cases, water pollution is actually increasing rather than decreasing now. So the Clean Water Act, the Safe Drinking Water Act are very important laws, but they desperately need updating. In 2010, the EPA received its largest budget in history from President Obama, more than $10 billion. But that's just a drop in the bucket, as drinking water upgrade projects alone are estimated to cost $340 billion over the next 20 years. Many of the nation's plumbing systems are also outdated, facing extreme stresses, and not equipped to handle today's population. New York City, for example, a lot of the pipes here were put in place over 100 years ago. And they're reaching the end of their lifespan, and that means they're cracking and leaking, which not only allows water out, but allows pollutants in. We need to reinvest in the infrastructure. It's very expensive. It requires ripping up streets. It's very inconvenient. It takes a lot of time and energy. And so people don't want to talk about it. They don't want to think about it. Many cities are in the same boat as New York, supplying water to their residents through aging pipes that would cost a lot to replace. Then, on the back end, are the cost of managing the sewage coming out. The New York City water system supplies close to 9 million people every single day. And it's not only supplying the water, it's treating the waste afterward. Sewage treatment is extremely important. If you didn't have sewage treatment, you quickly have bacteria and disease, polluted water. If this is starting to sound a bit overwhelming, you're not alone. Imagine what your local city or county government is thinking as they face the enormous cost of upgrading their water and sewer systems. That's one reason author Alex Prudhomme, in the book The Ripple Effect, The Fate of Fresh Water in the 21st Century, calls for large-scale coordination. He says we need to revamp and streamline the EPA's efforts and create a national water management system. You know, one of the things that's interesting is the way that our country governs water and manages water. East Coast water law is completely different from West Coast water law. And then each state has its own way of dealing with water. So there's this crazy kind of hodgepodge of laws which don't match up. At the same time, there's no one federal agency that oversees water policy. There's something like 20-odd agencies that have a hand in water. I personally think that this is crazy and that we're getting to the point now where we ought to start streamlining that and start rationalizing the system. I think that even, and this is heresy for a lot of people, but I think we ought to start at least having the conversation about creating a federal water office. You know, maybe appoint a federal water czar or a national water board to start to look at our water supplies comprehensively and, start, and holistically and start um, managing them in, in, a, in a more intentional way. According to the U.S. General Accounting Office, 36 states are predicted to face water shortages by the year 2013. Without a national water management authority, dealing with those droughts falls to the state and regional authorities. The need for those crucial government agencies to tackle the problem is coming into conflict with the wave of Tea Party influence conservative governors in states across the country, who've made it a priority to support the private over the public sector. Does water belong to the public? What happens if management of the water supply is shifted into private hands? Those are some of the questions being asked in Florida under their new governor, Rick Scott. Making Contacts producer Andrew Stelzer has more on the battle that's brewing for the future of the Sunshine State's precious freshwater supply. It's a sunny November afternoon, and I'm paddling a canoe through a picturesque mangrove forest about a 20-minute drive from Tampa, Florida. 
This area is called Cockroach Bay Aquatic Preserve. My guide, wetlands biologist Tom Reese, is showing off how much man has learned about how to imitate Mother Nature by creating wetlands where previously there were none. What we're going over right now is a big seagrass bed that just came in on its own. That's like the best barometer of health. The water has to be everything right to get seagrasses to grow on their own. The Southwest Florida Water Management District has been working for almost two decades to convert a group of pits created by years of shell mining into a coastal habitat on the edge of Tampa Bay. Reese's company, Ecosphere Restoration Institute, got involved a couple of years ago to complete the last stage of the process, and it looks like it's working. We go around a bend, the narrow waterway opens up, and suddenly, everywhere you look, fish are literally jumping up out of the water. Tampa Bay is really one of the really few estuaries in the world that are on the mend. And so if we can do that in spite of growth, then we have something right here, and we just want to don't, don't let it fall back again. This nearly 20-year-long restoration project in Cockroach Bay has been carried out and largely funded by the Southwest Florida Water Management District, which is also known by its abbreviated name, Swift Mud. But a 2011 law changed the way in which Swift Mud and four other regional water management districts, which cover the rest of the state, receive funding. There have also been major cuts to the five districts' budgets made by Governor Rick Scott. The governor came in saying that he was going to reduce the size of government. Sonny Vergara, a lifelong Floridian, managed two of Florida's regional water management districts during his 40-year career working in water management. Part of that process uh, is to reduce the budgets of agencies, which include the water management districts. There is, underlying all that, a valid reason to look at not just the water management district, but all agencies, and, and say that, you know, we're in a worldwide recession here. It's very significant. The, if they had done that in a way that reflected, they knew what the outcome would be. They knew what the consequences would be. They knew how much that would impact the water management district's ability to carry out their quote-unquote core mission. Then it would make some sense to me. But they didn't do that. Instead, the governor made a 30% cut across the board to all five water management districts' budgets and capped their ability to tax local residents. It is going to be tough. Robin Felix is media relations manager for Swift Mud. Just from last year, we've had about a 40% decrease in our budget. And um, right now, we're, we're living off of our balances from prior years and our reserves. And um, within two years, we will have a budget deficit. Vergara, a lifelong Republican, says the budget cuts threaten not only the environment, but the economy of Florida. You know, the idea is that I'm not a tree hugger. I'm pro-business. Well, they need to understand that they need to protect the trees and the birds and the natural part of Florida in, if they expect business in the future to flourish. Nobody wants to come and live in a state where all the canals are polluted and smell. Nobody wants to come 
uh, and live in a state where at one time uh, people put raw sewage into lakes and rivers and streams. Nobody wants to come to a state where um, uh, all the swamps have been drained and houses have been put in there and there's no natural system to cleanse the natural water, the, the, the rainwater that falls on the land. You have to maintain those natural systems. They serve a very important economic purpose. Florida's five water management districts have a lot of responsibilities beyond environmental protection. They also take care of water quality and flood control, which is crucial during hurricane season. Governor Scott promoted the cuts to water management districts' budgets as a property tax cut. But by most estimates, the average household will save somewhere between $15 and $40 a year in taxes. Only larger property owners, like big business, will save a significant amount. Disney and Florida Power & Light, for example, each stand to save a million dollars in property taxes. The tax break has been criticized as a giveaway to large Republican donors. But many environmental advocates say there's also another agenda at play. It is the beginning of privatization. Mary Jean Yan works with Autobahn Florida, lobbying in the state capitol in Tallahassee. You know, I think what has the environmental community worried here in Florida is that there's kind of a trilogy of actions that are, in general, weakening the authority of the water management districts here. The first two of that trilogy of actions were cuts to the water management district's budgets and the cap on their taxing authority. Then, in late 2011, House Bill 639 surfaced. It focuses on reclaimed water, wastewater that's treated and then used for a variety of purposes, including irrigating wetlands, parks, and golf courses. The bill says that once wastewater enters the treatment plant, it would no longer legally be defined as water. And during the few days it's being treated, whoever operates that wastewater treatment plant gets to decide what to do with the wastewater. Tampa Mayor Bob Buckhorn helped craft the legislation. When it comes to our plant, that is a chemically treated, manufactured commodity. It is not a naturally occurring source of water. I need to be able to control that. All I'm asking is for the four days that it's in those pipes, it's mine. And it doesn't belong to Swiftwood, and it doesn't belong to anybody else. The main criticism of the proposal is that it would allow the owners of wastewater treatment plants to sell the treated water to whoever they choose. In Tampa, the wastewater treatment plant is owned by the local government. But that's not true everywhere else. Some utilities are privately owned. Thus, citizens and local elected officials wouldn't have any say in the fate of their wastewater. The utilities are the ones who stand to benefit without a doubt. Autobahn's Mary Jean Yan. The decisions are being made by utilities for directing where they want water to go, which is often going to be your highest bidder. And many times you're going to have your environmental reasons if you need to replenish a certain aquifer or you've got storage concerns somewhere. That's not going to rank as high as a golf course who wants to pay you to irrigate their property, their keys and greens. Despite being surrounded by water, droughts are not uncommon in Florida. Numerous local water wars have raged between neighboring cities or counties over the years. It's important that the capability of funding those programs not be dismantled. 
Sonny Vergara says taking power away from the larger regional water management districts could lead to local entities fighting over water supply. And a lack of resources could also jeopardize all the progress Florida has made toward becoming a national model of wetlands restoration. The worst case scenario is that we will retrogress back to a time when, for the sake of jobs and business, we will allow development of lands in Florida without control, without any kind of coordination among the governments that have to make those decisions to approve or not approve them. You know, the worst case scenario is that all of those concerns are disregarded and business is allowed to go back to do business as usual. If they get back to that, it's going to be Katie bar the door, Florida's for sale. Under intense pressure from environmental advocates, the state legislature did amend House Bill 639, meaning wastewater will still fall under the legal definition of water and will still be under control of the water management districts. But with more budget cuts looming and at least two years left in office for a small government governor, public management of Florida's blue gold will likely face more threats sometime soon. For Making Contact, I'm Andrew Stelzer in Cockroach Bay, Florida. You're listening to Making Contact, a production of the National Radio Project. If you'd like more information or for CD copies of this program, please call 800-529-5736. Because of listeners like you, this show is distributed for free to radio stations in the U.S., Canada, and South Africa. To find out how to support us, download shows, or get our podcast, go to radioproject.org. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. With population increasing and the effects of climate change, many eastern states, like Florida, are beginning to reckon with problems that have plagued the West for decades. And if water management has a canary in the coal mine, so to speak, it would be California. The nation's largest agriculture producer has been redirecting water from throughout the state and from other states going back more than 50 years. It's helped turn California into an economic engine. But there have been negative effects as well, and as time goes on, it appears that especially in California's Central Valley, something has to change. To find out what's going wrong and what might be done, I spoke with John Rosenfield, a conservation biologist for the Bay Institute. He's one of the authors of a 2010 report titled Gone with the Flow, How the Alteration in Freshwater Flow is Killing the Bay Delta. Throughout the country, rivers are running dry. We hear that groundwater is being depleted, salt is building up in the soil, and a lot of that is linked to the irrigation system currently in place. There's been a lot of debate about what to do with it. So in moving forward, do you think that the model in place desperately needs to be changed? Is it sustainable? Um, It's certainly not sustainable in some places. And again, there's issues of quantity of water, which are serious issues, and then issues of quality of water. In the southern central valley of California, for instance, there's a lot of irrigation to grow crops, and that water uh, is exported out of our San Francisco Bay Delta onto lands, some of which have this underlying geology that contains constituents that get leached out of the soil by the agricultural 
irrigation and build up to levels that are toxic. So for instance, selenium in the San Joaquin Valley has been a big problem and drainage from San Joaquin Valley farms, some of them, causes big problems for water quality. Then there's the issue of the efficient use of the water that we pull out. We want to make efficient use of water because it's valuable to people, but also because pulling it out of rivers and streams and lakes has an impact on the other benefits we get from functioning rivers and streams and lakes. And so there's also issues of efficiency in water use, particularly in California, but really throughout the West. If you drive along Interstate 5 or other major interstate in an agricultural area in the summer, you're likely to see water spraying into the air, irrigating a crop. That's not a very efficient way of, of irrigating most crops. Also, you'll see just the notion of a reservoir is a, you know, a reservoir is a lake behind a dam that's built by humans, and it's there to store water, but it's got this tremendous surface area, and it's sitting out in the 90 or 100 degree heat of a California summer. A lot of that water is evaporating. So again, not a very efficient use of water. I see. So I want to shift the conversation to talking about this publication. It's called Gone with the Flow, How the Alteration of Freshwater Flows is Killing the Bay Delta Ecosystem. And this was published by the Bay Institute in August of 2010. And it's complex. The whole delta system is really complex. But if you can lay out some of the main points of this particular study, this report. It's pretty common for people to think, if you're talking about impacts to aquatic ecosystems and saying, uh, oh, the fish are dying, for people to leap to the, oh, there must be something bad in the water, something poisonous in the water. Sometimes that's true, but we've made great strides in this country through the Clean Water Act and other legislation in actually improving water quality. So there are things we still need to do on water quality, but this report is designed to focus people's attention not so much on the quality of the water and what we put in it, but on the volume and timing of the flow of water, which we've modified tremendously and which has tremendous impacts on our ecosystem and things like Chinook salmon that rely on functioning rivers. When you say modify, what exactly are you implying there or referring to? We've really destroyed the, the pattern of freshwater flow in the Central Valley, whereas water used to flow mostly during the snowmelt season, it now flows when people need it, mostly for agricultural uses. The volume of water that actually makes it through the ecosystem from the Sierra to the sea is reduced by, depending on where you look, from 60% to 90% of the water just doesn't make it where it was supposed to go. So that is a tremendous impact. And we've seen the result in declining fisheries and work stoppages for commercial fishermen, for instance, and economic impacts to upstream communities that rely on tourism built around uh, sport fishing, etc. So that's the main point of Gone with the Flow, part one. Part two is that we've done this and we can undo it. And we can undo it without ending all agriculture in California, and we can undo it without draconian measures that tell people not to take a bath. It requires conservation through all quarters, including agriculture, and all regions of the state from the north to the south. It may also require some rejiggering of our very antiquated water storage and distribution system, but we need to do something very quickly Otherwise, we risk losing an ecosystem that was once the most abundant and productive ecosystem on the West Coast of the Americas. 
So what is it going to take for people to change their mentality about water? People are going to have to change their value for water and recognize that, you know, our bodies are made of water. It doesn't get any more personal than that and that this resource is in jeopardy. So we need to use water more wisely. That goes for all of us who live in urban and suburban areas. Um, But we're also going to have to demand that the largest users of water in the state, the largest users of developed water in the state, reestablish a balance between their economic needs and the needs of the ecosystem and the needs of economies that depend on a functioning ecosystem, including coastal communities uh, from here to Oregon that rely on Chinook salmon, for instance, or community, rural communities in the state that rely on tourism and sport fishing revenue. There's a balance to be struck, but we passed that balance several decades ago, and certain users of water in the state are just taking too much now, uh, and it's time to, to roll that back a bit. Great. Thank you for your time. Thank you. That was the Bay Institute's John Rosenfeld. You can read the report he referred to, Gone with the Flow, How the Alteration in Freshwater Flow is Killing the Bay Delta, by logging onto our website, radioproject.org. And that's it for this edition of Making Contact. Funding for this program was provided by the Park Foundation. For a CD copy of this program, call the National Radio Project at 800-529-5736. Or check out our website at radioproject.org. To get a podcast, download past shows, or make a difference by supporting our work. Like Making Contact on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. I'm Esther Minia. Thanks for listening to Making Contact. <laughs>